This is the Historian's Podcast, and we welcome back David Petruja, who was one of the first guests on this program back in 2014. How are you, David? Doing well. David Petruja is an Amsterdam, New York native. He and I spent our childhood years in the then predominantly Polish section called Reed Hill. I am just four years his senior. David Petruja served as an Amsterdam alderman. He worked for state government, but then got into documentary film production and writing history books. His specialty started with baseball, and he's still very interested in baseball and baseball history. He's written books about it, but he, in general, has switched to a different kind of competition from baseball, how candidates in America are elected as president and what happens after they're elected. His latest book is called T.R.'s Last War, Theodore Roosevelt, The Great War, and A Journey of Triumph and Tragedy. It's uh, published by Lions Press. Uh, T.R. is the subject of many books, uh, David. Why did you decide to write about the end of his life? Well, because it's a story which is really not sufficiently covered. Even though, I mean, he, he doesn't have the the volume of books uh, of a Lincoln, but it's pretty close, and there is a continuing fascination with him. And our, we we all know what a whirlwind, what a hurricane, what a cyclone uh, he is. And I think that leads to people doing his uh, full biographies or even studying the latter years of his life really exhausted by the time you get to the point that I'm covering in the book. So, yes, there is the post-presidential period, and we and authors will talk about Africa or the Amazon or the 1912 election. Uh, but after that, they kind of drift away because they're like, oh, man, I'm beat. I can't, <laughs> I can't deal with this guy anymore. But there's still really a couple of very good stories left. The story of his fight for American uh, preparedness in, in World War One, in which case he is right on the money. We are not prepared when we go to war in April 1917. We have a standing army. We have the main army, not counting the National Guard, etc., of 85,000 men. Hmm. 85,000. We're drilling with broomsticks. We don't have planes or tanks or uh, just about anything we need. Um, so he had been right to argue for that. But is he arguing for it for the right reasons? Yes, in part, because, yes, he was right. Uh, but also for the wrong reasons, because there is within the man a bloodlust. Uh, and it goes back a long way, at least until the 1890s. We can certainly document it till till that. And he wants to go off and fight in that war. He wants to be, even though he's pushing 60, um and overweight and sick from the Amazon and blind in one eye and deaf in one ear um, and an ex-president <laughs> and not a particularly uh, subordinate subordinate even in the Spanish-American War. And that war was a vastly different war than what the trench war and the artillery-driven and barbed wire and machine-gun-driven war of 1914-1918 is. Uh, he... Uh, uh, wants to go and fight in that war, and he confides to people he wants to go die in that war. And, of course, he also has to put the Republican Party back together again. He uh, 
Lincoln was the rail splitter, and uh, Theodore Roosevelt in 1912 was the GOP splitter, (laughs) uh, giving the election to Woodrow Wilson with a minuscule 41% of the vote. He gets less of a percentage of the vote than Bryan does in getting creamed three times for the presidency. But when you've got not only a three-way split, but a four-way split with William Jennings or uh, Eugene V. Debs in the in the mix, uh, you can sneak in that way. And, and Roosevelt despises Woodrow Wilson. They had known each other early on in their life as as reformers, as as uh, patrician intellectual reformers of the American political system, although working different sides of the of the partisan fence. Uh, and it's one one of the things which I found very interesting was that one of the first people TRCs when he's president, uh, when he rushes down to Buffalo to take the oath, is Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow <laughs> Wilson is there. He's coming back from vacation in Canada. Uh, but uh, they part because of not only partisanship, one and not only because of their struggles over what we're going to do about World War One, uh, but there's this thing called Panama. And when Woodrow Wilson proposes a treaty to give another, I think, $25 million to Colombia and to issue sort of an apology to Colombia for what happened back in uh, 1903 and such uh, with the coup uh, engineered by uh, TR's friends to hand over uh, the canal zone to the United States, TR is just enraged. That is something he cannot cannot ever forgive because Panama is the great feather in his in his cap. Hmm. Let me uh, uh, and the, the risk of doing this in front of the historian uh, just kind of bring us up to a point and then ask you about what's going on at that point. Um, I mean it's, it's widely known but Roosevelt or TR was president 1901 to 1909 decided not to run in 1908 but soon became disenchanted with his hand-picked successor William Howard Taft and as you've been describing in 1912 he split the Republican Party by running on the progressive or bull moose ticket against a Republican uh, Taft uh, and Democrat Woodrow Wilson won the election. War breaks out in Europe, 1914, and he wants, you know, he's for preparedness uh, by America. But we, we come to 1916, another presidential election year. Did Roosevelt try to run again in that year? Yes, it's a very confused picture. And throughout his career, he's always saying, I'm through. You've heard the last of me. This is my last hurrah. Goodbye. And he never <laughs> means it. Or, well, he probably does mean it, but he never carries through on it, um, including what you've just described, which right after he's elected president in, uh, in 1914, 1904, he says, uh-uh, no, I'm not running in 1908, which was his greatest political blunder uh, by far. Mm-hmm. So... Um, he's always saying, no, 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 no. And he, and, and he has a famous statement early on in 1916, do not take me, i.e. do not take me for the presidency. The, the public should not, unless it is in a heroic mood. Hmm. And what it means is he wants the presidency, he wants it on his terms. And he's, he's not quite sure how to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, the Republican Party because his progressives are very progressive. Uh, they are very reform-minded. They hate 
the people who are running the GOP, the people who are running the GOP who remained loyal to Taft. And one of those figures is is a future president, Warren Harding. It's interesting to see how they go from from being at at knife's point uh, in 1910, 1912 to reconciling. And and I, I I have the feeling that had Harding lived or had Theodore Roosevelt lived uh, in 1920, that you would have seen a Roosevelt Harding ticket. And then maybe it would have seen a Harding presidency, yeah. uh, since there wasn't too much tread on the tire of uh, of Theodore Roosevelt. But he has to do it, and he has to do a tremendous dance, and it's not a particularly graceful dance at all. And what he does is, as he had done in running for the governorship of New York in 1900, what he does is he throws his reform, or in this case, progressive allies overboard to make nice with the Republican Party. Now, the conservative wing of the party that year doesn't have a lot of star power. In fact, Theodore has sort of sucked the, the air out of the whole GOP. I mean, he's such a dominant personality, even though he's been out of office now for, for eight years. But he is the big man there and he's going to shift his support eventually very very grudgingly to another new yorker to a fellow who is upstate born charles evans hughes mm-hmm. they're both reformers uh but tr in, in part because of a, a controversy over uh, an appointment of a state insurance commissioner when hughes was governor cannot stand hughes but it is a question of fire and ice and Theodore Roosevelt is the fiery personality of all the presidents, and well, okay, maybe with a current exception, mm-hmm. but the um, uh, Charles Evans Hughes is ice. He's a very cold personality, and he's nicknamed the bearded iceberg. They they so they so their personalities do not mesh, and also T.R. has tried anointing a predecessor once before in the shape of William Howard Taft. And that didn't work out too good. No. So it's like, I don't know if I want to try this again. But one thing he knows is he hates Woodrow Wilson. He hates him because of preparedness. I think he hates him because Wilson has stolen his progressive thunder. Uh, he hates him because of Columbia uh, and the Panama Canal. Theodore Roosevelt, neither Theodore Roosevelt nor William Howard Taft was invited was invited to the opening of the Panama Canal when Woodrow Wilson was president. You know, what's what's up with that? You know, so a lot of reasons to dislike Wilson, who he called a Byzantine logo thief. I'm not sure what that means, but he also <laughs> called him a skunk, and I, I know what that means. Yeah, I do too, yeah. But uh, despite his misgivings about Hughes, doesn't uh, T.R. campaign actively for him in 1916? Right. Again, he says, well, I'm I'm not going to be a part of this campaign. And then he is a part of this campaign. And he becomes uh, one of the big issues. And he, he hurts. You know, sometimes a candidate will get hurt on both ends of the ideological spectrum. And in this case, the, the ideology, if you can call it that, is, is what are we going to do about the war? So you have some people attacking Hughes as a tool of the Germans, because he had met with some German-Americans just before 
uh, the nomination. Um, and, you know, is he going to be a tool of the Kaiser somehow? And on the other hand, is he going to be, people fear and really fear, is he going to be a tool of Theodore Roosevelt, mm. who you know damn well at that point wants to get us into this war? So you have, in this case, a very rare instance of the surrogate overshadowing the candidate. And in any case, probably the worst thing Charles Evans Hughes did in a really, really stellar career as insurance reformer, governor, secretary of state, Supreme Court justice, uh, was run for president. It was a very uh, rough campaign, or a very poorly run campaign, and in he faces two almost insurmountable challenges in his in his defense. One, you've got to be very careful in putting those two wings of the party back together again, so you've got to be kind of blah. And when you're <laughs> blah, that's not going to help you in the election. And he's running against Woodrow Wilson, and he's running against peace and prosperity. Mm-hmm. We are at peace, and that peace has bred prosperity in that we are selling stuff hand over fist, including munitions, to the Allies, and people are working overtime. It's a great time for America uh, before April 1917. We're talking with David Petruja, his latest book, TR's Last War, Theodore Roosevelt, The Great War, and a Journey of Triumph and Tragedy. We'll have more with David in just a, a moment. We want to put in a word for our GoFundMe campaign. We depend on your contributions to keep the Historian's Podcast going on the Internet and also on our radio outlets. At You can make a contribution by going to GoFundMe.com forward slash Historians 2018. If you don't want to give online uh, with your credit card, you can uh, send and send a check for uh, support of the Historian's Podcast. Uh, Make out the check to me, Bob Cudmore, and send to Bob Cudmore at 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. And thank you very much. On this edition of the podcast, our guest is David Petruja, his latest book, TR's Last War. When America goes to war in uh, 1917, you have told us that uh, T.R. wanted to serve. He wanted to be sent overseas and actually fight. But um, at some point, Wilson, is it Wilson, uh, puts the kibosh on that? Well, he, he applied originally to Secretary of War Newton D. Baker and doesn't get anywhere there. And he goes down from New York on a very late train out of Grand Central, or Penn Station actually then, to and shows up at his daughter's house uh, with the idea that the next morning he's just going to bang at the door on the door uh, of his old home, the White House, unannounced, and confront uh, Woodrow Wilson in his den and try to cajole him into granting the request that he lead uh, a force uh, in in uh, France, and he's got it all planned out. He's figured out what kind of guns they're going to use, and who's going to command this group or that group or the officer corps. And and really, he's got a huge number of people who will serve with him. I mean, the TR name is magic, uh, particularly the boom. The people who the TR name is magic. His he has this really 
huge course of people who idolize him, uh, willing to die along with him. Um, but he is re- reaches the limits of his charm with Wilson, who I said before we he had met and known and grown to hate. Wilson's attitude, Wilson has a reputation as a very prickly individual. And one of the things that struck me in writing the book was how measured and controlled he was, even in private, at least that we know of, regarding Roosevelt. While Roosevelt is throwing all these verbal bombs at him, uh, Wilson will not respond at all. Hmm. And he listens to T.R. respectfully and sort of gives him a non-answer, which might be encouraging. And in fact, it's, it's just a bit of soft soap. His secretary, Wilson's secretary, Joe Tumulty, uh, asks him, well, what did you think of, uh, of uh, President Roosevelt when, in, in this meeting? And he said, you know, he's quite the charmer. He's like a, like a big boy, and you've, you've got to love him. But, you know, he, he wasn't about to do it. T.R. was too old, uh, too inexperienced for this type of war, too ex-presidential to dare to put anyone like that in, into combat. And really, frightfully, as I said, in, in insubordinate, mm. and and so it would just be trouble. And Wilson already had trouble with one of T.R.'s best friends, a guy named General Leonard Wood, an old Rough Rider who had been Army Chief of Staff, and was uh, uh, just as insubordinate of, as uh, uh, Roosevelt. And you know, they could have cashiered him out of the army for the stunts he was pulling. But they were smart enough not to make not to a martyr Roosevelt. out of them, like but, MacArthur. Let me just move this along. Uh, but T.R. doesn't go to, into the war, but his sons do. And that's probably the reason for the word tragedy in your, uh, in your title there. Absolutely. Uh, T.R. gets his war. Uh, his sons know being, you know, well, people are very patriotic. And the upper classes then are very patriotic and willing to serve. And, and they... Um, it is an eastern upper class war in many cases it's not it's not midwest so he has four sons he has ted junior who is going to be shot and wounded and gassed in france he will die on the beaches of normandy following d day uh archie who was wounded very badly very badly in uh france and is sent back to the states and is sort of held together with scotch tape he is Wounded with a hundred percent disability, as the as the Veterans Administration or whatever the equivalent of that was then, rated disabilities in World War One. But he goes off to fight again in World War Two in the Pacific and is wounded a hundred percent again. Wow. The only individual like that, uh, Ted Jr. is so gallant he wins the Medal of Honor. Uh, going back to him, Kermit fights with the British in the Middle East and Mesopotamia. He meets. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia along the way and eventually fights with the American forces. He's a very brave guy, too. He captures a whole bunch of Turks uh, armed just with his nerves and a, and a swagger stick mm. and gets talks them into surrendering. But the tragedy comes in with the youngest son, Quentin, who is a Harvard sophomore, 20 years old, when he enlists a week after the declaration of war, is trained to be a pilot he's greatly mechanical he's fascinated by aviation but being an oh, a world war one military aviator is 
almost akin to being a kamikaze in World War II. Hmm. So he was. I've seen estimates where it's either eight days or eleven days of a of a life expectancy when a rookie pilot goes up in the air. Hmm. And so he was shot and killed in in the yes. war. Yes, July Fourteenth, uh, Bastille Day. T.R. gets the news uh, that his his son has been shot down. He doesn't know at first if he's alive, dead, captured, wounded, or not. But he eventually gets the news. And that was the tragedy for T.R. And there are a couple, uh, we have just about eight minutes left. I want to get in two other points. After uh, the war, Roosevelt only lives for, for two more years. And uh, let me ask you this directly. Do you think he had a hand in or actually took his own life? Well, he lives not for, for he lives after the, the war ends November 11th, 1918. He is in the hospital. He's been sick for maybe two and a half months of the last uh, year of his life. In February, and again, he goes into the hospital on Armistice Day, comes out Christmas Eve. Um, He comes out in a wheelchair. Uh, They tell him, you may have to spend the rest of your life in a wheelchair. He is suffering so badly from either rheumatism or sciatica. The diagnoses keep changing in the newspapers and, and I think in the doctor's minds. He can barely write his own name. He is in phenomenal pain. He has lost his son. And I do not say one way or the other whether he has taken his own life. But I say this, and this came to me as I was wrapping up writing the book just at the end, and I I really wrestled as to whether to convey the information, but I thought it best to convey the information to sum up his his life and death, which is, he's so manic, we remember that. He's chopping wood, he's charging up San Juan Hill, he's, he's exploring everywhere. Yeah, we know that. He's reading a book a day, but he's also very depressive. And yeah. A lot of other authors make this point, and people who knew him say, you know, we knew him, and and his downs were phenomenal downs. Hmm. Um, Now, what happens is when he is in the Amazon, he nearly takes his own life there because he's sick. He doesn't want to be a drag on the rest of the people and endanger them, and he says to Kermit that he's going to take morphine. He has a bottle of morphine with him, which he carries everywhere on these trips, for just that purpose, not as a painkiller, but as something to kill himself with. Mm. with. And what he is, is he's administered morphine that night for pain, which is his wife asked for that to happening to happen. Um, certain symptoms of his death indicate that it might have come from morphine. He might have had the morphine administered to him and taken the rest. We don't know that. Mm. I don't know that. I don't say that one way or another, but I do say that he had the means, motives, and opportunities. And he also has uh, the curse of heredity, where so many of his family members, including his brother, uh, his younger brother, Elliot, who was an alcoholic uh, and a drug addict, uh, tries to jump out of a window just before his death on 103rd Street. Kermit kills himself. Kermit's son kills himself. His daughter, Princess Alice's daughter, kills herself. 
And many of these things are, are covered up because they would be, well, one thing, insurance policy. Yep. Don't and, pay off. Yeah, David, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, we have just five minutes left. I want to bring up this one other point. As I'm reading the book, I'm thinking to myself, some of this sounds like Donald Trump. And I even <laughs> went to your, your index to see if you put Trump in it. But you didn't. But I, yeah. but I saw you quoted in an article that, that this occurred to you as you were writing the book. Well, what I was talking about was was how TR was um, was, as they say in baseball, had rabbit ears. Mm-hmm. Rabbit ears means they could hear every boo and hiss and cat call and thing from the opposite player. And Donald Trump certainly has rabbit ears. And TR, when I was really reading about his uh, his letters in the 1904 campaign, he couldn't campaign. It wasn't done for the president to do that but man he was reading all the papers and he was fuming just fuming about every criticism he would get in the press and in 1908 he instructs his attorney general to bring criminal libel charges okay talk about Mm -hmm. the press is the enemy okay Criminal libel charges against Joseph Pulitzer and the president, the publisher of the Indianapolis News, for printing reports that maybe uh, T.R.'s brother-in-law and Taft's uh, a relative of Taft was profiting from the building of the Panama Canal. So it and and of course the hyperactivity and 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 just you know being an unprecedented president. Uh, T.R. comes in at the right time for us to remember him. He comes in at the time where there are motion pictures, where there are phonograph records, where there are newspaper photographs being printed instead of little drawings, where there is the rise of the yellow press and the daily press and the great papers in America. So he comes in at the right time for a guy who is willing to exploit and is capable of exploiting all of these new media, and also enabling us to remember him, whereas the presidents who precede him uh, are are invisible because the media isn't there for us mm-hmm, to watch right. him. David Petrugia has been talking with us. His latest book, T.R.'s Last War, Theodore Roosevelt, The Great War, and a Journey of Triumph and Tragedy. I've really uh, in, enjoyed the, the book, and I, I recommend it. And I wanted to, and again, now we just have a minute and a half left. I just wanted to bring up this com- other topic, but about your books. Your book, The Year of the Six Presidents, has been op- Option for a movie by a, a famous descendant. What's happened there? Well, uh, yes. Uh, Walter Matthau's son, Charlie Matthau, uh, has contacted us, and we have um, uh, optioned the book, or he has optioned the book, which is the beginning step in the production process, really. Uh, but it's uh, a step which is absolutely necessary in what he does. And now he, he likens... Uh, 1920 to the current events and wants to tie uh, the airing of any 1920 six-part series uh, on something like HBO, whether that will happen with that network, I do not know, uh, to the 2020 election and to air it in anticipation uh, of that election in the run-up. And that could be very interesting. Uh, I'm not about to recommend to him... uh, 
who he might, uh, you know, <laughs> cast it with. That's 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 his job, uh, and 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 Godspeed to him. Yeah, and this you had this uh, opportunity with your book on the criminal uh, Arnold Rothstein, but that nothing came of no, that. No, uh, that that's why that's why I remain somewhat guarded, as opposed to jumping out of my skin and putting on a beret and pretending I'm going to Hollywood. <laughs> okay. uh, so no, because we we've played we've played the game before. David Petrucia has been with us. His latest book, TR's Last War. Thanks for listening to the Historians Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.